Okay, so we start again. So I had a lot of things that I wanted. You know, the way I think about what am I going to talk about on Wednesday morning is uh, I think about what are all the things that I want to talk about. They have uh, democracy movements happening all over the world. The Academy Awards are happening. Everybody watched them. Uh, you know, uh, how am I going to put them all into a Dharma talk? You have to have some reason to, you know, you can't just say, look, at these are all the things I'm interested in these days, and these are the books I've been reading. Uh, so you have to somehow move them around so that they make some Dharmic point. <laughs> but I thought to myself that, uh, that, uh, actually, it makes sense to me to think about seeing things through the eyes of Dharma because it's a phrase that I'm, I'm sure that I'm remembering from Stephen Batchelor's book, um, Confession of a Buddhist Heretic, which, isn't it? Atheist, Buddhist Heretics. I'm sorry, Stephen, now it's on tape about that. I apologize, not a heretic. A heretic is a person who's, who has a different idea, actually. That's what heretic means, people who's on the edge because they think a different idea. So that might put Stephen in that category. But what he actually has written is Confession of a Buddhist Atheist. And what he's talked about, the, one of the, may, maybe the main point of that book, uh, recapitulating a point of his earlier book, which is Buddhism Without Beliefs, is that the core of what the Buddha taught, the philosophy that the Buddha taught, the understanding that the Buddha taught, is completely approachable and accessible and useful to anybody apart from doctrinal uh, differences. That uh, I just finished teaching a, uh, a, a retreat at uh, Santa Sabina Center last week uh, that, uh, that I use, for which I use the text, The Asian Journal of Thomas Merton. Thomas Merton, as you know, was probably the most influential Catholic writer and monastic of the 20th century. And one of the things that was um, quite important about uh, his legacy is um, his being able to talk about and write about his interest in Buddhist uh, thought and practice. He'd been very interested in studying Zen and in, um, go, he went to Asia. It was actually on a trip in Asia that he died. And he had met with the Dalai Lama. He met with Nyanapanika, who's um, um, in the Theravada tradition. But he met mostly with uh, Tibetan uh, teachers. He met with the Dalai Lama. He met with other lamas to talk about the uh, really the essence of contemplative practice. And there are, there are uh, uh, passages that describe discussions that he had with this lama or that lama, where they're discussing what is your most interior experience when you are practicing. And they discover, uh, probably not surprisingly, that they understand each other quite well because everybody fundamentally, apart from the story of religious practice, is looking for the same experience of profound peace, opening into a sense of non-separateness from everything that is. One of, the, uh, one of the three understandings that the Buddha taught is the, the understanding of anatta, the, the interconnectedness of all things. That, and that, that interconnectedness is an interconnectedness of all experience as it's arising and seeing through the sense of separate 
the separateness, the separate I, the separate you, the sense that uh, you know on, on a superficial level, uh, this is Sylvia and 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 this is Susan, but on a fundamental level, this is all creation and human beings coming and going in different shapes and forms, coming all of it out of the energy of consciousness, the energy of creation. Talking about that particular vision, which uh, the mystics in all religious traditions have wanted to see. Talking about the source of all being. Uh, Paul Tillich called it the ground of being. And past all these differences and see and, and making the point that those people who have that vision are then converted to peace in their mind and peace in the, and making peace in the world because they see it as, as, as they see their lives as part of the whole of life. So anyway, teaching that last week, in a sense, was making the point of, uh, that Stephen is making that uh, not to do away with the stories of different religious traditions. They're very helpful, those stories, as pointing the way or telling the direction. Whether you tell uh, the, the, the truth that uh, uh, liberation of the mind is a possibility, freedom is a possibility, and you tell the story of the Buddha's own Awakening. You tell the story of uh, you, you tell the the uh, Western story of um, uh, liberation uh, going forth from Egypt. If you tell that not as an historical story, because there's actually no historical documentation for that happening, but if you tell it as a metaphor, if you tell it as a metaphor from being enslaved by the habits of mind to going to past the habits of mind to a certain freedom. And it's um, um, very interesting. Uh, there's, um, what's his name? George Fowler. George Fowler uh, uh, has uh, written a number of, of books. One of them is called Teaching the Mind to Dance. And uh, George Fowler is an ex-Trappist monk. He's, and he talks at great length in that book about the difficulty that, that uh, 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 people have these days. He said people grow up in a religious tradition that tells a story and, said, and, and the tradition says this story is true and this story is important to pay attention to. And George Fowler said those, that the, the stories, which are metaphors and uh, ways to make a point, was suitable as they are for generations of people historically to get an idea about uh, liberation or to get an idea of, of ethics or morality. So they're not suitable for 20th century people who say this story doesn't make any sense. And the story, he says, is not what religions are about. Religions are about opening people into the truth of non-separateness so that we can, in fact, transform our minds and transform our hearts. He's very strong about that. So back to Stephen Batchelor and Confession. And he says in Confession that really uh, what's important to him, leaving apart all the stories about the Buddha, whether they're true or not true, some of, some of them truly are, some of them might be metaphors. Uh, he says that really what's true is the Four Noble Truths. And he says, if I use the Four Noble Truths as a template for my life, 
I use them for the frame through which to see my life and to which, through which I can work with the challenges of my life. That works for me. So I thought, well, you know, that would be something that I'd like to think about and explore and remind you of today because then I get to tell you all the stories that I want to tell you today, among other things. And besides, I actually am thinking more and more that that makes sense to me, that, that we think about what is useful in this life of converting our own minds to uh, peace. So starting with the first noble truth, which often gets, gets said as a life is dukkha, like it's life is suffering. It's not constant suffering. I mean, there are moments of uh, delight when people have a new baby or twins get to be eight years old or whatever. There's lots of delight. Going to the opera is usually a delight. Having dinner with friends is a delight. I think that, that uh, dukkha is best translated as... Um, one of the, some of the texts do it as unsatisfactory. Life is unsatisfactory, and they mean it's unsatisfactory. It, it's unsatisfactory because it, the experiences that we have or want will not be ongoingly gratifying since they'll change. But I don't like to say life is unsatisfactory either. It sounds like when I went to grade school, you either got a U or an S, <laughs> satisfactory or unsatisfactory. I got a U in third grade, which to re I remember till now. <laughs> I got a U and works and plays well with others. So I, so I, I, I that's the worst. This <laughs> it was probably true, you know, I'm an only child. Maybe I didn't work and play well with others, but my, you know, it engraved itself in my mind, that U. <laughs> so I don't like that our life is unsatisfactory, but life is constantly presenting us with challenges because that's the nature of being alive. It is a challenge to go out on a rainy morning. It's a challenge to wake up in Libya this morning. It's a, uh, what was I thinking about? No, oh, I, I heard yesterday on the, on the news, I was driving alongside, I checked the news, KCBS, and they say tomorrow it's going to be raining and storming. And so it's going to be a really a challenge for motorists to go to work tomorrow morning. And I was thinking, you know, that, that they probably put that in because it's exciting. It makes the news into drama. Uh, you know, it wasn't so hard to get to work this morning. It wasn't raining when I came, but, you know, presents it. Well, wait, watch out for tomorrow. You know, so there are little challenges. Like sometimes it's a, it's a challenge to drive in the rain. It's a challenge to wake up in Libya this morning. Somebody told me that they... Uh, were, went to shop in, in the pharmacy at, at CVS and there was a, a woman with a small child, homeless and begging outside the CVS in Marin County and how struck she was with the pain in the middle of, of the world, you know. And she said, I stopped, I gave her everything that I had in the way of, you know, that I could give at that moment and she said, um, it's just overwhelmed. She said, as I was walking up to the pharmacy, I had stuff in my mind about I was annoyed at this and I was annoyed at that and this wasn't going exactly the way I wanted in my life. She says, all of a sudden I saw this woman and I thought it's really not going well in her life. You know, my stuff is nothing compared to here is this woman with this little baby. 
And she said, my, my, uh, my family said, ah, you know, you shouldn't have done that. She said, that's a cynical view, that, that, that there's too many people like that, and you can't do that, Mom. And they had a bunch of other things that they could say about it. And she said, but I thought it over, and I could do it. And you know, that, that, that it's not going to make a difference. She said, it's going to make a difference to that one woman for that one day. She said, that's what I felt like doing. Because if you pay attention, you can say, if, if you really pay attention, it's not just this one woman in front of the CVS. It's what kind of a culture do we have where there are such inequities of resources, where there are people here in the street with babies not well taken care of. What's wrong somewhere in the system? And I listen and we all say our prayers and intentions. So many people who formerly had jobs don't have jobs. How do we know that this woman or this woman's companion had a job and doesn't have it now? Don't know what went on. And what a challenge it is to one's own heart. What should I do now? The challenge, I think, you know, I'm not going to write another book, but if I did, I'd probably call it, what should I do now? In any It would be the story of mindfulness. Because mindfulness is not just knowing what's happening moment to moment, but it's knowing what's happening moment to moment and responding by thinking and acting on what should I do now? Is there something I can do that will alleviate suffering in the world and in myself? And the second noble truth is often put as uh, suffering is the inability to wisely accommodate whatever is happening, that that's suffering. It's sometimes put as the, the cause of suffering is craving, or craving is suffering already. It's tension in the mind. I've been saying for some years now that um, I've been using the word imperative because that seems to me so, like it has to be different now, you know. Um, The third noble truth is that wisely accommodating, being able to wisely accommodate in whatever, creates peace. It's often said uh, the third noble truth is peace is possible. I think it's actually it's better to say wisely accommodating creates peace. It's like, here's a challenge. I could storm it up and make tension in my mind, or I could say, ah, what should I do now? I can do something or I can't do something doing what I can do, being able to accommodate if I can't do, that preserves peace of mind, it creates peace of mind in the next moment, and it allows me to do something wise, because I'm seeing clearly my mind is not confused. I'm going to read you a story right away. When I was thinking about this this morning, I was thinking uh, being able to wisely accommodate creates peace, and of some of the well, this one is on the verge of ridiculous, but Gertrude, Gertrude Stein was said to, as she was dying, uh, she said to her doctor at her bedside, I accept the universe, who presumably said to her, Madam, you'd better. You know, that, you know, that, but, so it's always, it's always a little funny when you hear about that, but you know, it's much better. Or Maureen Stewart, who I like very much, who said, uh, presumably with her dying last sentence, thank you very much, I have no complaints. That's a really good way to accept the universe. 
it's actually a wise way to accept the universe. It, um, a friend of mine who um, had most of her money invested with Bernie Madoff told me afterwards when we talked about how it was to discover that that money was gone, I said, how did it feel when you discovered that that had happened? So well, it was quite shocking. You know, someone phoned and told me about it. I couldn't believe it because it's my whole savings. And you know, I'm a, where am I going to start to earn this again? And uh, so I was actually quite worried about how I was going to do the rest of my life. But she said, you know what? She said uh, she's a long-term practitioner here and everywhere of this kind of response to challenge mindfulness. She said, you know what's the only thing I didn't feel is I didn't feel angry. She said, because I just knew that I had enough trouble as it is without getting angry, that anger was extra. And at the time that she told that to me, I was so blown away by it. I thought if that's actually the fruit of practice, that to be able to say under those circumstances, getting angry doesn't make any sense. It complicates the situation. It creates suffering. Have enough pain in that situation. God knows it's a very painful situation. But not to make it into suffering. And, having, and keeping the mind clear enough to be able to spontaneously have that happen. Because I don't think that under those circumstances we could say, well, I feel like getting angry, but matter of fact, I won't because it's unwise. It has to just happen because the mind is so clear about getting angry is extra. They lead uh, those moments of clarity, do not complicate the situation, and in some way they lead the mind out of its own situation into a connection with uh, outside of oneself. It's actually a liberating moment. It liberates the mind from the tyranny of concern about one's own problem. Everybody is suffering. Everybody who lost money with Bernie Madoff is suffering. Everybody who lost money when the stock market collapsed. Everybody who lost money or who was losing money because they don't have jobs. Everybody it puts us into a, into a relationship with all the suffering people. And for myself, when, uh, when I can move from uh, I, I have this pain to we're all in a certain amount of pain. It doesn't take away the pain, but it, it makes me a kind of companionship in the pain. We're all doing this life one way or another. Even if at this moment mine is, my life is not so challenged, my friend's is. My friend who needs to make this decision is. My friend who needs to make that decision is. So I want to read you a story which is, I think, the story of what happens when your mind... Actually, by not clinging to fixed views, you remember that line at the end of the Metta Sutta, some of you may not know, that often here we read the loving-kindness uh, sermon together and talk about it, because I, I think it really encapsulates the whole of the Buddha's teaching. But in the end of it, where it's talking about what happens if you're able in all circumstances to respond with good wishes for yourself and for other people. Well, good wishes is a fancy word for compassion. Well, compassion is a fancy word for good wishes, actually. It's the other way around. If you're able to respond with compassion under all kinds of circumstances 
to oneself or to others. It preserves a peace of mind. And in the end, it says, uh, this is said to be the sublime abiding, the sublime abiding of a mind compassionate moment to moment to what's happening. This is said to be the sublime abiding by not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one having clarity of vision. Having clarity of vision, because if you have a suddenly a view, it's got to be different than the mind that is unclear. It's stirred up with that angst. Is not born again into this world, which I take it is not born again into the next moment of suffering. So this is a uh, this is a story that uh, my friend Sheffa Gold sent to me. So I said, "Can I tell the story?" She said, "Yes, you can." <clears throat> my friend Sheffa Gold, she visited us once on a on a Wednesday morning here. <coughs> my friend Sheffa Gold is a rabbi extraordinaire and a really wonderful teacher. Walking up, this is called uh, Burnt Bagel Breakthrough. Walking up 7th Avenue in New York City on a Sunday, sunny winter morning, pulling my suitcase towards Port Authority bus station, my mood was expansive and I was feeling grateful for the spaciousness that would allow me to choose the quintessential New York breakfast place. I saw a sign that shouted, breakfast special, 345, two eggs, toast, and home fries, and I knew this was the place. I schlepped my suitcase to a back table. Schlepped means I dragged. <laughs> I dragged my, it's sort of made it into the, made it into English pretty much by now, but. I schlepped my suitcase uh, to a back table and then waited online in the cafeteria-style counter while I watched the sweet, diligent, extended family of workers who I imagined were Guatemalan farmers translated, transplanted to the city. They were flipping eggs and juggling plates in perfect communication with each other. Their wide-open faces concentrated on the task of feeding hundreds of busy tourists, office workers, and shopkeepers on their way to work. The young man behind the counter offered me a smile as he handed me my breakfast special. I had asked for a bagel, and I was looking forward to a real New York bagel. Living in New Mexico, I could never trust the bagels of the Southwest. <laughs> what do they know from bagels? Well, the eggs were fine, the home fries plenty, but the bagel was burnt. I hesitated for just a second, then I carried my plate back to the table. A little background here, I've always hated burnt toast. I always carefully order at restaurants, lightly toasted, please. I demand as clearly and as nicely as I can. But this time, I'm sitting in front of this burnt bagel, and my whole life of wanting what I want, asking for what I want, and getting what I want, comes into question. The me that likes some things and hates other things suddenly recedes. And I am quite simply grateful for the breakfast special that God, the universe, the Guatemalan family has made for me. I bless and eat this blackened bagel. I am fully present to receive its unique taste and texture. <laughs> Suddenly, there is no judgment. All of my preferences are gone. It tastes exactly like a burnt bagel. But my whole story about what I like and how I like it is gone. With every bite, I think this is so interesting. I feel so light, and I know that I have tasted freedom.
Isn't that good? Isn't that good? Chef will be so pleased. I'll tell her I read this to you. The line that I, I'm now going to recapitulate for you in another form is, I am quite simply grateful for the breakfast that God, the universe, and the Guatemalan family has made for me, and that none of those are separate from anything else. So here's Thomas Merton. He said, uh, the ripening intuition, oh, it can be said that this is someone writing about Merton. It can be safely be said that an implicit non-dualism runs through Merton. It's so funny to go from a burnt bagel as an expression of non-dualism <laughs> to Merton. It can safely be said that an implicit non-dualism runs through Merton's writings, and even the very earliest writings, a non-dualism that becomes more and more explicit as he turns to the East. This ripening intuition was given classical expression in what has probably become the best-known event in Thomas Merton's life, the so-called vision of Louisville that he experienced on March 18, 1958, in a shopping district at the corner of 4th and Walnut. As he saw people moving in and out of stores, he was overwhelmed with the realization that he loved all these people and that they were neither alien to nor separate from him. He saw that they were all one, as if they were billions of points of light coming together in the face and blaze of a sun that could, if they only realized who they really were, make all the darkness and cruelty of life vanish completely. So it, it, I, 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 I read this the other day, and then Sheffa sent me the bagel story, and I thought, that's exactly the same thing, that in that moment, when discriminations disappear and everything becomes as one. Quite simply, all the darkness and cruelty of life vanish completely. That they can vanish completely in a moment. that other thing. I had something else that I decided not to read, but now I decide it would be a good thing to read. The vanish completely is interesting to me. What causes things to vanish completely? Um, this is a, just a small, it's a small piece of an old, old book called The Well of Loneliness. It's a lot of history about this book. Um, it's an old novel um, by Radcliffe Hall, one of the first novels that had to do with same-sex love. And um, when it was still difficult to talk about, I read it when I was in college, which is now almost 60 years ago. There's a point that doesn't have to do so much with that particular theme, but uh, talking about things disappearing from the mind automatically. Um, somebody wrote, learns, learns of the death of Roger. He had been shot down while winning his victory cross through saving the life of a wounded captain. This is in wartime. All alone, he had gone over to no man's land and had rescued his friend where he lay unconscious 
receiving a bullet through his head at the moment of flinging the wounded man to safety. Rogers, so lacking in understanding, so crude, so cruel, so remorseless a bully, Roger had been changed in the twinkling of an eye into something superb because he had been utterly selfless. Thus it was that the undying urge of mankind toward the ideal had come upon Roger. And as she sat there and read of his passing, suddenly she knew that she wished him well, that his courage had wiped one great bitterness out of her heart and her life forever. So by dying, Roger, all unknowing, had fulfilled the law that must be extended to enemy and friends alike, the immutable law of service. Now somebody does something that really is above and outside of what we recognize as the human impulse to take care of themselves. We see somebody else do that, really be so selfless as to be able to give their life for somebody else that suddenly, no matter what they've done and how they were, that all gets erased. I think because it touches in us that particularly noble potential in ourselves. We become holy when we remember that in that moment, that we are cut out to be able to do that, strung to be able to do that. That's an incredible thing to think about being a human being. When the Buddha says, every human being is precious, Dalai Lama says that a lot, too. I was thinking the fourth, we should mention, just to be sure that we've covered it, that the fourth noble truth are the practice paths. How do we get to be able to maintain that kind of mind that uh, is so steadfastly rooted in equanimity that it resists all the, all the impulses for self-centeredness, like Rogers in that last paragraph that I read you, and responds to what human beings can do, but resists also the, 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 the impulse to anger, the impulse to resistance, the impulse to um, revenge, or even the impulse to become irritated with things, just the mind that's devoted not to not noticing, but to noticing and maintaining its equanimity so it can do what it should do next. What should I do next? That'd be a good name of a book. What should I do next? Who knows? And I think to myself, see, I think that what it takes to do that is somehow giving up the view that things should be a certain way. I was thinking, actually, we should take out the word should. Should is a funny word to think about. It says, shouldn't be happening that uh, 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 this world in, the, in our modern day where we not only know that we're destroying lives but destroying the planet and now voting to undo. I forgot about this. I was listening to the radio yesterday, and true full disclosure requires that I say, I did have annoyance arise in my mind. I don't know what I would do. This is such a small thing, but it's not a small thing, that um, for the first time in a long time, well, for the first time since Nancy Pelosi was Speaker of the House, 
they have reintroduced styrofoam cups into the no into the House of Representatives. I mean, of all things, reintroduce styrofoam cups. No, I don't know if it's to save money. I, I think it's to make a point because the styrofoam cups were one part of changing all the light bulbs in the Capitol buildings and several other measures that, in fact, had a tremendous money-saving effect as well as being preserving of the environment. They were all part of Nancy Pelosi's uh, agenda. And they can't put, put the old light bulb back, but just like that, they can put the styrofoam cups back. And I thought to myself, the world is going down the tubes, and people are making a gesture with styrofoam cups. It's unbelievable. And my mind, and then I realized, okay, we'll just think about that. But I could see how easy, and it's, a, it's, it's not a small thing, but it's a small thing. That if I'm going to get irritated about listening to the news, there's a lot of more things to get so I could get concerned, how to listen to the news and get concerned. That'd be a good name for a book, How to Listen to the News and Get Concerned Without Getting Overwrought. Um, I was thinking about um, even the, uh, the, uh, the well, I, I was just saying that the idea, it should be this way, by not sticking to fixed views. It should be that way. If they say it's that way, what should they do? Um, I think this should could make a point, like I wish it were another way, instead of saying it shouldn't be like this. If it could be replaced by the sentence, I wish it were so that, uh, I wish that uh, the United States had not supported dictators so long in all those years with a lot of people suffering. Uh, I wish... Uh, I wish that all political candidates were wired up to lie detectors while making speeches that were set to go off and ring bells and lights and buzzers as soon as they say something. Seriously, I heard this morning that a major political candidate, not mentioning who, said yesterday that it was because Barack Obama grew up in Kenya that he has his particular foreign policy. Barack Obama's father was Kenyan. He didn't visit there until he was an adult, finished with school. He did not grow up there, nor was he born there. But people make statements, and a lot of people believe this. I wish that they didn't make those statements. But I also wish, yeah. Um, I'm thinking, too, that it, it, if you say should and yeah. are railing, you may be covering up fear. Yeah. Because if it... You know, it shouldn't be that way because if it is that way, I'm afraid. I'm yeah. very afraid. Yeah, I actually think that underneath all of these is a little bit of fear. Even if it's like a small fear, like I fear I'll be disappointed. It, like uh, if I were being the wish, I really wish that Jeffrey Rush had won the award for Best Supporting Actress because I thought he was fabulous. And I saw the movie three times, actually. <laughs> and I'm waiting for it to be available, to be able to buy it, because I want to see it three more times. I'd take each of my different groups of grandchildren to it, because I thought it was amazing. So I, so, but the, and the truth was, I was a little bit disappointed when he didn't win. But I also saw The Fighter and the man who won. I thought it was a, uh, Christian Bales was fabulous, you know, so the, the, my mind said, I wish this, but the other guy, Rrr. so I mean, if all my wishes were on the level of who won Best Supporting, <laughs> that, was, 
That would be okay. That would be, I'd be happy. But you know, when, when people win, did you all watch the other night? Who watched? Everybody watched? My friends who lived in San Anselmo didn't watch because the Comcast cable went down just before. There's a whole piece of Marin disappointed because they couldn't watch. <laughs> well, I don't know. We all watched. Because I, no, I watched. I watched. I liked the pageantry. Um, uh, and I liked the movies, too. So I had a certain amount of energy. And it's, it's theater, you know. Um, Anyway, but that should be my most strongly I wish. Oh, I had one more wish this morning. I, I was wishing, I was reading the Wall Street Journal because um, uh, I'm very proud of the fact that in Monday's Wall Street Journal, I don't normally read the Wall Street Journal. They normally have, they're very articulate and they're actually, they're, they're well, uh, they're well-informed. They don't say facts that aren't true. I was realizing that of the two major newspapers, of the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times, that I buy on when I'm on airplanes and read both of them, that they're both extremely well-written, uh, very well-researched. They don't say things that aren't true. They take the same world and they pick out certain information to write their articles. And this other one picks out other information and puts it together. And, you know, if you read this one, you know, it's like that Sufi story of, you're right. As a matter of fact, you're also right. If I, unless, but I'm actually invested in this other story getting right, being right, because if I believe this story is right, like this particular issue talks about what's the matter with the labor unions and why what's happening in Wisconsin is a sign that labor unions need to be phased out. You know, I come from a... About my, my grandparents were members of the garment workers union in in the in the in the early part of the twentieth century. So I grew up learning not to cross a picket line, and uh, all my 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 father was a member of the teachers union. Everybody was unionized. But you know, I read this and I think, hmm. and I, I'm actually and and I'm 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 aware that it's a difficulty for me to read it because I have to listen to the other opinion. I have a certain amount of um, concern lest they be right, unless they change my mind about something, you know, or, or raise. So you might think, so why am I reading it? I'm not reading it as an exercise in, in consciousness. I'm, I'm reading this because the, I'm very proud of the fact that it's a complicated thing. The front page article on what's happening now in Libya has a byline of somebody, of two writers, two uh, Wall Street Journal writers, and one of them is my cousin, Charles Levinson, who's 30 years old and I've known since he was born, and his parents live in San Francisco. And he's, he's, in, he's in the middle of Libya, and he was in the middle of Cairo, and he was up through that whole Cairo business, and he was in Baghdad before that. and. Uh, uh, and he writes very well. So all these things in my mind, I think, well, you know, I'm starting to like the Wall Street Journal. It's almost as if my mind says, God forbid, you should like the Wall Street Journal because of what they said about unions. You know, be careful. It's hard to have a, it's hard to have a balanced mind that says, look, I'm going to listen to everything. Maybe I'll be convinced of something else. Or maybe I'll be convinced that I don't know everything. You know, that I can just say, 
I don't know. It's very complicated. I voted, and that's about it that I can do. Every once in a while, I can do something more dramatic. I was thinking, I was thinking of us, Susan, this morning, when I was thinking about how I wanted to put together this morning. I was thinking about it. There's sometimes things that you can do. You can make your opinion known that uh, uh, before the um, the beginning of uh, the American bombing in Afghanistan, uh, I would have said, I wish that this didn't happen, that we worked it out some other way. And uh, so what am I going to do? And so I, actually Susan and I and Donald all were at um, the Federal Building in San Francisco as part of a, of a peaceful clergy demonstration, spiritual leaders demonstrating about war doesn't work ever. Uh, and we got arrested. Uh, that's the only time in my life we've ever been arrested. That's, that's the only time in Susan's life she's ever been arrested. And Donald's also, for all. We were, that was the first time that we were ever all arrested. I have photos. I, you know, and, my family watched on TV. Uh, uh, my daughter said, I was so proud of you. And then she said, I saw you standing there. You had to stand up and you had to put your hands behind you to get handcuffed. And she said, I started crying. My little mother is getting handcuffed. <laughs> but uh, they were very kind to us. They were, they were very kind to us. Uh, what, didn't they ask you to give them a blessing? Yeah. They took us one by one. Oh, they dropped all charges. I mean, that yeah. we kept saying we bless you, and um, <laughs> <laughs> we know you're just doing your job. This Morris and Joe. And then one by one, they took us to the door. And as the policeman walked me to the door, he said, "Would you give me a blessing?" <laughs> and I said to him, "I bless you." And then I said, "I bless our soldiers. I bless the Iraq people. I bless everybody." Uh, yeah. <laughs> So maybe we, made, maybe we made a difference. We didn't stop the bombing, but maybe we changed some people's minds. And the truth was that, the, that the, those, those federal marshals, they were very kind to us. They were, they, they, you know, they were, there was nothing that we could say. They were doing their job. They had to do their job. We blocked the door of the federal building. We sat down in front of it. When was that? What year was that? Uh, well, it was the beginning of the Iraq War. Some, Six years ago. Oh, yeah. Yeah. To 2003, 2003, 2003, um, and I, you know, actually, I, I felt good about having been there and having done that. Didn't stop the war, but maybe it made some people think a little bit different. I think about maybe, maybe the place where I want to come to is. Uh, I was thinking this morning while reading the Wall Street Journal, I'm thinking, no, 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 I don't believe this, I don't believe this, but you know, I'm still reading because it's a, you know, it's a thoughtful piece. I said, you know, may I really be able to convert my mind to be able to say, well, I'll listen to what you have to say. If the whole world could say just that, I'll listen to your point of view. Let's talk it over. Maybe it's time to have another point of view. Maybe I'll have some other idea. We could have a different world. We could have a different world. We could have a responsive world if we everybody say, "Well, how about this? How about that?" I think that that's what our president's trying to do with all his heart. 
is to be that mediator, and the world is infuriated by. I mean, mm-hmm. especially part of our country is infuriated by that. See, I'm. I love I'll, that about him. Well, I'm hopeful that that's what this means. That we do not need to, you know, um, we don't have to be in charge of the world either. You know that. We'll see what happens with this, but it's hard, very hard to watch and know. Oh, I wanted to read you one more thing. I know you gave me a sign, so I'm going to read you one more thing. I know about the sign. Uh, Thank you very much. I have a few things that we didn't read and talk about, but we'll do that next week. Because I want to alert your opinion to a a blog that I am loving a lot. Maybe it's because the person who writes it is a personal friend of mine, but I think he's doing a wonderful job. The blog is called The Leap Into the Void. The Leap Into the Void. And you can find it by Googling The Leap Into the Void. Or you can Google Jim... Cullender, K-U-L-L-A-N-D-E-R, Cullender. Jim Cullender is a friend of mine. And the leap into the void that he has recently made is uh, he's left his job as program director at Omega Institute, where he's been for 20 years and loved it, to uh, take some time away without a job and finish the various books that he's writing and that he's hoped all the time to finish and hasn't been able to. So it's a really, it's a quite a dramatic thing in the middle of life to take some time off to say, I'm really going to do what I have wanted to do, my, my, uh, my heart's desire. And this is his second blog entry. So it's, it's actually a beautifully done blog. So I really recommend it to you. He doesn't write every day. It's not overwhelming. There's only two blog entries up to now, so it's beautifully done. And in this second one, he talks about um, having been with a friend and a group of friends where someone said uh, uh, that the definition of sin was becoming distracted, that that sinning uh, was off the mark, somehow distracted, and that uh, he's saying... uh, when we sin, the Greek word in the New Testament that is translated in, as sin is hamartia, which means mixed, missing the mark when shooting an arrow or throwing a javelin. So when we sin, our aim is off. We have a distorted vision of the world because we lack focus. We're distracted. The, what's so liberating about this notion of sin is that we can correct our vision and intent just by paying attention. What's troubling is we can't look at anyone to save us from ourselves. It's up to each of us to pay attention, to make the first step to creating a better world. Because when you pay attention, you can't help but notice not only the beauty all around you, but also the suffering around you and inside you. And what can arise quite naturally and spontaneously if you are really and truly paying attention is gratitude and benevolence and compassion. The philosopher and activist Simone Weil wrote in her book, Waiting for God, that every time that we really concentrate our attention, we destroy the evil in ourselves. That's so beautiful, isn't it? Could you repeat that last one? Every time we pay attention, we destroy the evil in ourselves. Okay, one more sentence then. It talks about a, a, a particular uh, work of art, um, uh, a a, a painting, which you will see if you look in his blog. It's beautiful. 
Georges de la Tour's painting, The Repented Magdalene, and he explains what's in the painting and how it looks. But he particularly talks about the word repentance. And he said, the word repent is a loaded word in our culture, and it reeks with heavy moral penitence. But most of the time in the New Testament, the Greek word for repentance is metanoia. Etymologically, metanoia means a profound change in one's vision of things. It's what happens to people after a stark realization. It's an awakening. Jesus experienced metanoia in the Garden of Gethsemane. Siddhartha Gautama experienced metanoia when he sneaked out from behind his family's palace walls to see the suffering, the dukkha of all life around him. Anyway, I really recommend that that blog to you. I think you'll enjoy it, and um, he'll uh, enjoy having you on his blog. Anyway, I really uh, wish you a very good week. You will see me now. Uh, my my <laughs> Ruth is giving me signs. I told her you get me out of the door by 10 minutes to 11. So I will see you next week. I am happy that you're back. I'm happy that I'm back. Precepts at 8 o'clock. Thank you very much. Next week is our one day a month that we come at 8 o'clock instead of 9 o'clock, those of you who want to or who can, and we do precepts together. It's very, I don't want to say it's very fun. It is very fun. It's very nice, but it's also, it's not heavy. It's fun. It's the fun of waking up and looking at yourself. Anyway, if you can come at 8, if you've come from England and you're going home before then, it would be too long of a trip. But otherwise, <laughs> it's a pleasure to have you here. May all of us have a good week. And if you go back to Maine before next week, okay, take good care of yourself there. It's very cold. <laughs> Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.